That's what I call being on top of things. Thank you, John. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. The Lord gave us another week since last Sunday to serve him and to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I hope that we have been successful to some extent in doing that in the last seven days. This morning, as we turn our attention again to the book of Titus, we're going to be examining the second half of the book, chapter 2, verse 11, through the end, just as Richard has read for us. Now, it's interesting. I probably received more feedback after last week's message than I recall receiving in quite a while. Those of you who spoke to me mentioned two things. The first thing is that many of you were amused by my discussion of healthy and healthful foods and the proper use of the English language. And I hope I have succeeded in making all of you very self-conscious about the use of adverbs. Now that reminds me of something I wanted to mention last week, but I forgot. Did you know that Dr. Luke, the author of Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts, was a Texan? Did you know that? This is a little-known fact. In Acts 10.38, Luke says that Jesus went around doing good. That's my best Texan accent. I still haven't learned... Well, the second piece of feedback I received was a request that sometime in the future we go back and look at those first ten verses of chapter two that we skipped over so quickly. There's a lot of meat in there, and uh, perhaps sometime in the near future we can do that. It would be, I think, very good for us all to take a closer look at those verses. But our task today is to push forward into the second half of the book, Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do so. Father, this is your word. It comes from your very mind, and it is exactly what we need. Grant that we may see it clearly, understand it accurately, and by the work of your spirit, obey it faithfully. This we pray through your Son. Amen. Well, let's get a quick bird's eye view, again, of the structure of the letter. This is a bit of a review, and then we'll jump into the second part of the book. Now, you may recall that the first four verses of the letter are Paul's greetings, and that the letter closes in chapter 3 from verses 12 through 15 with some final instructions from Paul to Titus. The first major section of the book, chapter 1, verse 5, to the end of that chapter, was Paul's instructions on the appointing of elders in that corrupt culture of Crete. The second part of the book is the first ten verses of chapter 2, and we looked at those last week. That contains instructions for personal relationships within the body with the intent that they will adorn the doctrine and encourage unbelievers to look into the Word of God and see why it has such power to transform people. The third part of the book is really chapter 3, primarily the first 11 verses. 
That section of the book contains instructions for believers on how to live in society at large. Now, you probably noticed that we skipped over in our overview verses 11 through 15, the second half of chapter 2. These verses are extremely important because they lay out the reason why Christians should practice what we called last week true liberation theology. You see, there's a reason why it's so important that we demonstrate the fact that Christ has freed us from the enslaving power of sin. The reason is that God's grace teaches us something, and it's fascinating and not coincidental and not accidental that Bruce's choice of a focus for our worship service today was grace. We're going to spend a good bit of time this morning looking at exactly what it is that God's grace teaches us. Let me point out just one more thing before we move on to the details of the text. We're going to see the phrase good works over and over and over in the text of Titus today. Paul has a lot to say about good works in this letter. In fact, if you were to ask me what I thought the theme of this letter would be, I would say it's the place of good works in the life of the believer. Now, we as Christians often get nervous around the idea of good works. I want us to see today that good works have a very special place in the lives of those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. Well, that completes our overview. Let's begin to look at the details of the text. Turn with me to chapter 2 and put your finger at verse 11. In a moment, I'm going to read the end of chapter 2 for you, but I want you to look at the very first word at the beginning of chapter, uh, of chapter 2, verse 11. What's that word? It's for. It's a little Greek word. In Greek, it's the word gar, like the fish. Anytime you see that word for, particularly in the writings of Paul, it's a marker saying, pay attention. This is the reason for what you just read. Now, last week, we looked at the verses that precede that little four, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. In those verses, Paul essentially said something like this. If you live this way, if you live according to true liberation theology, you will make the word of God beautiful to unbelievers. And conversely, if you don't live according to the instructions of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you will blaspheme the word of God. You will make it unattractive. You will drive unbelievers away from God's word. Now, that's all very interesting, but it's still a fair question. Why should I care? Why should I care what unbelievers think about the word of God? Well, here in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul answers that question. Listen as I read these verses for you. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I believe that those four verses are the key statement of the entire letter. These these verses contain the fundamental motivating truth, the reason why we should adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, by how we live. Let's take a closer look at that reason. Now, Paul starts out with a fundamental truth in verse 11, and everything that he says after that is based on that. But it's a tricky statement, and it's tricky both grammatically and theologically. It's tricky grammatically because there are two ways to translate it, and both are workable as far as the mechanics of language are concerned. It's tricky theologically because both of those ways of translating the verse raise theological problems. Now, some of you may have noticed this when I read it. If you're reading the New King James or the NIV, you'll see the verse translated something like this. And listen to the order of phrases. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, if you're reading the New American Standard or the Net Bible, you'll see it translated something like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Do you see the difference? The statements are not the same, and all of us have a translation that picks one of those two choices. Now, the question is this. To what does that phrase, to all men, apply? Does it apply to the word salvation, or does it apply to the word appeared? Now, you can't answer this on the basis of, gra- on the basis of grammar, because both of those are workable in the grammar of the passage. And interestingly, whichever way you take it, it raises some theological issues. Now, if the proper translation goes like this, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, then the theological question is this. How could Paul say at this early point in history that God's grace had appeared to all men? There were surely some people in the world at that time who had never heard the gospel. So that's problematic. But if it's the other translation that goes like this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, I think we've got even a bigger theological problem. How can Paul say that God's grace brings salvation to all men? Because we know that there are some who will not be saved. Now, the way to resolve this problem is, as it usually is, to allow clearer passages to guide us and to allow our theology to guide us, which is based on clearer passages. Now, we all know that Paul didn't teach universal salvation, right? Did Paul believe everyone would go to heaven? Absolutely not. We also know that Paul recognizes that all men have not heard the gospel because he speaks of his ambition to preach the gospel in places where it has not been heard. I think either translation will probably make sense if we recognize that what Paul is saying is that God's grace, his unmerited favor that brings salvation, is available to all men 
and has been made visible in the cross of Christ. The statement is this. Paul isn't just saying that salvation itself is a grace of God. He's saying that God acting in grace has not only provided salvation, but he's sent the message out and it is available to everyone, although not everyone has heard it yet. Now, we talk about the grace of God and salvation, and we should, and that's wonderful, but it's also interesting to think about the grace of God not just in providing salvation, but in providing the means for the gospel to go out. And interestingly, what's the means? It's us. It's us fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, I think we can move on beyond verse 11. Let's, let's do so and consider the flow of the passage as we go down through verses 14. Let me break it down for you. Verse 11, which you just looked at, says that God's grace has made the message of salvation available to all the world. Verse 12, God's grace teaches us how we should live. Verse 13, God's grace teaches us to live in continual joyful expectation of the return of Christ. And verse 14, Christ gave himself to save us and to redeem us and to make us an army of zealous good deed doers. Now let me make it a little more succinctly. Verse 12 tells us how to live. Verse 13 tells us what to anticipate. And verse 14 tells us why Christ saved us. Let's look a little bit more at the details. Listen to verse 12, and I'll read verse 11 just to introduce it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, Paul's point here is that God's grace teaches us how to live. The us here is, of course, who? It's believers. It's born-again, blood-bought, spirit-indwelt Christians. If you have put your trust in Christ as your Savior, God's grace is teaching you something, and that is how to live in the present age. Now, Paul says that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, put behind us, the things that used to drive our behavior in the past, and instead make a conscious effort, an intentional effort, to live in a way that demonstrates what I have been calling true liberation theology. Now, Paul gives us three adverbs that describe how we should live. The first adverb is the word soberly. This Greek word means to be self-controlled, to be prudent, to be wise, to be moderate. Sober living is never out of control. Sober living is thoughtful living, not knee-jerk living. And the most important thought for sober living is the recognition that God paid a high price to redeem us. Now, the second adverb that Paul uses is the word righteously. 
This word describes upright living, doing what is just and right and proper according to God's standards. It has to do with conformity to God's standards. To live righteously, you have to know what God's word says is good and right, and you need to make that the standard of your actions. The third adverb is godly, and godly is a strange thing because it's both an adjective and an adverb. I want to say you need to live godly, Lee, but that really sounds stupid, doesn't it? This is the Greek word eusebos. It's an interesting word. To live in a godly way is to be reverent toward God. It means to treat God with the respect that he deserves. Godly living includes both being afraid of displeasing God and wanting very much to please him. Well, let's move on to verse 13. Verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, as you recall, taught us how grace teaches us to live. Verse 13 teaches us what to anticipate as we live that way. As we seek to live soberly, righteously, and godly, we should be anticipating the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that one little verse is packed full of theology. It touches on the deity of Christ. It touches on the sequence of events that will surround his return. It touches on the rewards that await us as believers when he will come back. I could teach on this verse for hours, but we just have a little bit of time And I'm only going to hit a few of the high points, and forgive me for what I skip over. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is actually the verse of end, uh, the, the verse of end, the end of verse 12 as it relates to verse 13. Paul says we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age as we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Now, Jewish eschatology, the picture of the way that history would come to a, con- a consummation, broke human history down into just two parts, and I think I said this to you in the past. There was the time of waiting for Messiah, and then Messiah would come, and then there would be the age when Messiah was here, ruling on earth, fulfilling the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament and bringing all the blessings of the millennial kingdom that we look for. Paul's point is that we are living in the first of those two ages, the age of waiting for a Messiah. But since we are waiting for him, what does that mean? It means he's coming back. Now, the second thing I'd like you to notice is how Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at it. He calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Outside of our Lord's statements in the Gospel of John, this is one of the clearest and most forthright statements of the full deity of Jesus Christ that you can find in Scripture. And if you compare this verse with verse 10 
a little bit earlier where Paul calls God the Father our Savior, you can see that Paul is saying Jesus is just as divine, just as much God, just as eternal as God the Father is. Now, the third thing I'd like you to notice is that the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, his future return, is a blessed hope. It's something exciting. It's something to which we should be looking forward to with joyful anticipation. You adults, do you remember how you used to feel when you had a birthday coming up or perhaps Christmas was getting closer and there was that almost magical sense of expectation? A sense of excitement that something good was coming and you didn't really know what the details would be. That's how we ought to feel as we anticipate the certain future physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to clean things up and to make things right. I would love to say more on that subject, but time limits me and we have to move on. Perhaps another day. Well, finally, we come to verse 14. Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Remember, the point of this whole passage, verses 11 through 14, is to tell us what God's grace teaches us. Verse 12 indicates that it teaches us how to live. Verse 13 indicates that it teaches us what to anticipate. And verse 14 tells us that it teaches us why Christ gave himself to save us. Now here in verse 14, I see three truths. The first one is that Christ gave himself for us. The second one is that he did it to redeem us from every lawless deed. And the third one is that his goal in saving us was to purify for us for himself and to make us into a special group of a special kind of people, people who are zealous for good deeds. Let's take a closer look at these three ideas. The first one is this. Christ gave himself for us. Now, those few short words describe an incredible act of self-sacrificing love, which we celebrate every Sunday. Our Lord Jesus took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. He talked. He performed miracles. He represented the Father in perfect accuracy. And finally, sinless and guiltless himself, he went to the cross bearing our sins in his death and rising to prove that the Father had accepted the payment for our sins in full. Now, Paul goes on and he says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. Whatever your sins were before you were saved, whatever sins you're walking in now, Whatever sins you may commit in the future, Christ paid 
the penalty, the price on the cross when he hung there and died for us. You see, you and I were sold in the slave market to sin. The price of our freedom was beyond anything that we could pay. Christ paid it with his sinless blood, and he redeemed you and me from slavery to sin and from the penalty of sin. Well, Paul goes further. He says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from sin and to purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. He didn't stop with paying our debt. He didn't stop with redeeming our souls from the eternal penalty of eternal damnation. His goal was to cleanse us from our old way of life, to free us from enslavement to sin, and to purify us so that we could be an army of good deed doers. Now, when I read this passage, I always think about the 11-year-old Boy Scout dressed up in his spiffy new uniform, cheerfully helping an old lady across the street as she keeps on saying, but I don't want to cross the street, you know? Um, The picture in our case, unfortunately, is often the reverse. It's we who we believers who often don't want to or don't think about doing the good deeds for which we were saved. We sometimes forget what grace teaches. We forget how we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. We forget what we should anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the joys and the rewards that await us when he comes back. We forget why he saved us, to redeem us, to purify us, and to make us an army of good deed doers. Paul's words here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, remind us of what grace teaches. And each of us needs to read this passage often so that we don't forget. Well, Paul ends the chapter with a final word in verse 15. He says to Titus, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, what Paul instructs Titus to speak on the island of Crete is not just for them. It's for us. It's for all believers. It's authoritative teaching. It bears the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Whether we need the encouragement to do right, of which the word exhort speaks, or whether we need a sharp reprimand against doing wrong, of which the word rebuke speaks, or whether we need to stop forgetting to do what is right, of which the word remind speaks, we must must take uh, seriously these verses, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We must remember what grace teaches, because when we forget, we fail to be and we fail to do what Christ saved us to be and to do. Well, let's move on to chapter 3 now, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8. Listen as I read them to you again. 
Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, these eight verses are really a small theological treatise in themselves on the saving work of God. And they also speak of the proper response of those who have been saved to God's saving work. We're going to give a little bit of attention to the saving work of God here, but put most of our efforts into examining the proper response to what God has done in saving us. Take a quick look at verses 4 through 7. You can see that in these verses, Paul is tracing God's saving work on behalf of sinners. I want to make just a few quick observations here. First, did you notice how all three members of the Trinity are visible in these verses? Verse 4 speaks of the kindness and love of God the Father. Verses 6 and 7 speak of the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 speaks of the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity were and are active in our ongoing redemption. Now, second, did you notice the absence of any contribution from men to God's saving work? It's interesting. Paul doesn't even mention faith here. Of course, that's part of the process. He says in verse 5 that it's not by works of righteousness that we have been saved, but according to his mercy, he saves us. The salvation that Christians receive when they believe, that, that sounds silly, the salvation that sinners receive when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not something they earn. It has nothing to do with their deeds. It's something that God gives in mercy, that he gives in grace, that is a pure, pure gift. Now, thirdly, I'd like you to note the means by which we have been saved and the results. Paul says in verse 4 that it's God's kindness and mercy that save us. He says in verse 5 that we are saved according to his mercy. We are not just saved by God's mercy, but according to his mercy. And that means that our salvation is just as great and just as comprehensive as God's mercy. Look at verses 5 and 6. They tell us that God has poured out his spirit on us abundantly. 
abundantly. It's as if Paul is saying God didn't just sprinkle us or wash us with his spirit. He drenched us with his spirit. His spirit is through and through each one of us who is a believer. And he will never leave us. Finally, verse 7 says that we've become heirs. And notice the next word, according to the hope of eternal life. Paul likes that word, according to. You know, I don't have a rich uncle. I kind of wish I did. Because if he died and left me all of his millions... I would be his heir. But I would only become an heir of my rich uncle according to the hope of the remainder of my mortal life, however many years that might be. I could only enjoy my inheritance from my rich uncle for what's it going to be? 20, 30, maybe 40 more years, and then my life would end. But the salvation that is ours through the work of Jesus Christ and through, in fact, the work of all three members of the Trinity is an eternal salvation. The inheritance that awaits us is not merely one that we will enjoy for a season or even a lifetime. It is, according to verse 7, an eternal inheritance. I don't know about you, but I would gladly trade millions for the rest of my life for the inheritance that awaits me for the rest of eternity. And we need to keep that in view. Well, time prevents us from digging deeper into verses 4 through 7, although there's much to say. I want to turn our attention to verses 1 through 3 and also verse 8. Now, I see three reminders in these verses. The first reminder is in verses 1 and 2, and it concerns the duty of Christians toward the world at large. The second reminder is in verse 3, and it concerns what we used to be. The third reminder is in verse 8, and it really summarizes all of the exhortations that preceded in chapters 2 and 3. Let's take a closer look. Let's look first at the first reminder in verses 1 and 2, a reminder of how we believers should treat others in the world at large. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, when Paul says to Titus, remind them, he's not just saying, I taught them this and you need to tell them this one more time. He's saying, Titus, keep on reminding them of these things. Because we sinful human beings have a tendency to forget so easily and so quickly. Let me summarize the commands of verses 1 and 2, just in a nutshell. I think Paul is saying, Be a good citizen, be a good neighbor. And don't do this just before your fellow believers, but do it before and in the world and the culture in which you live. 
Now, Paul moves on to his second reminder in verse 3, and it's a familiar one. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. You know, if Paul had written those words this morning, could he have done a better job of describing us and our culture and the human race today? It'd be pretty hard, wouldn't it? It's pretty accurate. You see, the world has changed radically in the 2,000 years since Paul wrote these words, but the human race hasn't changed at all. There's not a lot of comment needed here. Paul's point is that we who have been saved are no better than those who have not yet been saved. The only difference is that we have become the objects of God's grace and that God is beginning a process of changing us. It's not who we are that makes us different from other people. It's what the triune Savior God has done that makes us different. And that is precisely why we have a duty to model before the watching world the power of true liberation theology. Now jump down to verse verse 8 and we'll find the third reminder. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Paul likes that phrase, a faithful saying. If you look through the pastoral epistles, you'll see that he uses it about five times. I think this phrase, a faithful saying, means a slogan, almost a Christian proverb, something that would be worthy of memorization for believers. He says, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Say it with me. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. What exactly does Paul mean by this? Well, I think, first of all, he's saying this slogan is only for believers, If you are here today and you are not a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something far more important to worry about than good works. Your good works will not earn your salvation. Your good works will not please God. In fact, nothing that you can do until you are saved is capable of pleasing God. If you're not yet saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you need to do first is to put your trust in him and receive new life. And if you're in that position, please talk to me or any other Christian in this room, and we'd be very happy to help you. Now, secondly, Paul is telling the truth about good works. He says those who believe, who have believed in in Christ Jesus should be careful to maintain Good works. Stay with me here because this term good works is very, very important. And it's a very misunderstood term. I can see three aspects of the truth about good works 
that we need to camp out on here for a few moments. First truth is this. We are not saved by good works. Back in verse 5, Paul said, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We who have been saved did not save ourselves. We contributed nothing. Whatever we may have thought of as good works before we were saved were nothing but filthy rags in God's eyes. Good works before we were saved or after contribute nothing to our salvation. Now, the second truth is this. We were not saved by good works, but we were saved for good works. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10? Don't turn there. I'll just read them for you. Paul says, Therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, catch this, that we should walk in them. We were not saved by good works, but we were saved for good works. And the third truth follows on the first two. God expects us to consciously and intentionally pursue doing good works. Paul says those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Be careful means make a conscious conscious effort. Don't leave it to chance. Maintain good works means keep it up. Don't stop. Make it a habit and a regular thing in your life. Now, I just gave you three ideas on good works. I want to move back to the third idea in Paul's faithful saying, and I hope I don't confuse you. This is the second, third thing. All right. The third thing I see in verse 8 as a whole is the closing sentence, which is so obvious that we tend to skip right over it. Take a look at what Paul says there. The very last sentence verse 8 in chapter 3. These things are good and profitable to men. What does Paul mean, good and profitable to men? It's very simple. He's saying that when believers do what they were saved to do, when they make doing acts of kindness, actions of integrity, honesty, good deeds... When they make those things their regular business, the lives of the people around them will be better. To put it another way, godly Christians, godly Christians, Christians who are making an effort to maintain good works, they are the best neighbors. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to make a few comments on verses 9 to 11, and then we'll move on to a conclusion. Listen to those verses. Paul says to Titus, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing 
that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is that he's giving Titus some final advice on how to select elders and who not to select. Men who are hung up on esoterica that benefits no one, men who love to argue and who cause disputes in the body, are automatically disqualified as elder candidates unless they respond to correction. Now, let me make just one more observation. According to verse 8, good works are profitable to men. According to verse 9, foolish works are profitable to no... I'm sorry, foolish disputes are profitable to no one. There are a lot of us in this room who teach in various capacities. We need to keep this in mind. Foolish disputes are of use to no one. Well, it's time to wrap up the message. There's so much more to see in this book. I hope you're beginning to love this book if you didn't before. I want to finish with four brief observations. My first observation is this. God's commands usually come with an explanation. I could take you through the book and show this, show you this. Some of you have probably all already noticed it. But let me simply give you a little bit of homework if you haven't noticed it. Sometime on your own this week, go through the book, find the commands, and what you will notice is that after each batch of commands, Paul gives a reason. It's do this, do this, do this, for. Do this, do this, do this, for. See, God doesn't have to explain to us why he gives us the commands that he gives us. But very often, he does. Those of us who are parents, those of us who are training up younger people need to keep this example in mind. There are times to say to our children, you don't have to know why, just do what I say. But very often, explaining to them why we tell them what we tell them is a good and valuable thing. And it's interesting that our Heavenly Father often does that. My second observation is really just a specific application of the first observation. God's grace comes before good works, and it comes apart from good works. But after we have received God's grace, we should respond with obedience. To put it another way, the reason why we should pursue and maintain good works is that God has bestowed his grace upon us. That's the connection. Sometimes I think as Christians we are in danger of exalting grace so much and exalting God and his grace so much that we forget that God expects a response. And he does. And he deserves that response. We didn't earn his grace by responding. But he deserves the response of our obedience. Now, my third observation comes directly from verse 8 of chapter 3. And this is it. Listen carefully. Even when our good works don't bring unbelievers to faith in Christ, 
they still glorify and please God. Let me say that again. Even when our good works do not bring unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ, they still glorify and please God. Let me put this in a different terminology for all you good Calvinists here. God wants us to be agents of common grace. He wants us to be a blessing in the world. He wants us to make this planet on which we live a better place to live. I'm not talking about saving Mother Earth. I'm talking about being good neighbors. I'm talking about being salt and light. I'm talking about being a preservative in human society. Paul, as the agent of God, says these things are good and profitable to men. And he doesn't say to Christians. He just says to the world at large. There's value in simply improving human society in the here and now when it is done out of love for God and appreciation for grace. And my final observation could mushroom into an entire series because it concerns a topic that many of you know I dearly love, the future return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me simply note that what grace teaches, according to chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, involves not only our past, that's our salvation, and not only our present, the call for lives of godliness and good deeds and sobriety and righteousness, but it also involves our future, namely the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't buy the lie, and you may have heard this in a church, don't buy the lie that says eschatology is not important for living the Christian life. Don't let anybody tell you that looking into what Scripture promises for the future will distract you from serving God in the present. Paul says that God's grace, the grace that he has shown to us in the past and that he is showing to us in the present, teaches us to look forward with joyful anticipation to the return of Christ. You know, during our first term in the Philippines, Myung and Caleb and Andrew went over to Korea to spend a few weeks with her relatives. I had to stay behind to do my ministry. And although I was very busy... I was lonely without them. I spent all of my free time while they were away painting the inside of our house. It was a difficult and unpleasant job, first of all, because the house was 50 years old. It was built out of cinder blocks. I think it had been painted once when it was built. And it had 50 years of black soot from the diesel fumes of the trucks in Manila on the walls, and I had to remove that soot first, and that was a hard job. The second reason it was different is that the only paint that I could buy was an old-style oil-based paint that was about as thick as peanut butter. And if you know what, those of you who have used oil-based paint in a humid environment in the 90s, it is not fun. 
<clears throat> it was a messy, hard job, but doing it actually made me very happy. What made it a joy was the thought of how pleased Mi Young would be when she returned because she hated the color of the inside of our house, and I didn't blame her. Now, our Lord Jesus is also on an extended trip, but one day he will return. Do you want to please him? If you do, don't ever stop anticipating the wonderful day of his return. And don't fail to maintain good works. May our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us and purify us, enable us to live in, in the anticipation of the great day of his return and to continually serve him as his own special people, zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it would be so great if you <clears throat> came for us today. How wonderful it would be if five minutes from now this church was empty and the cars were still in the parking lot. And all over the world, your people were gone because you had lifted them off in the rapture. We have no idea when you're going to do that, Lord. But until you do, help us to pay attention to what your grace teaches us. Help us to turn away from ungodliness and unrighteousness, to seek to live sober, soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, to be a blessing to the people around us and to anticipate your coming with joy. Grant, Lord, that we may follow your counsel and build up treasure in heaven that when you come for us, each one of us may gaze into your wonderful eyes and see there your approval. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.